Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us uh, as we consider our ways today. Help us to consider our ways and to understand how we are living. And Lord, we pray that where we find that we have walked astray, where we are going off the path of righteousness, oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to turn our steps toward your statutes, towards your decrees, towards your laws, and so we may walk in the way of newness and life. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we've returned now to John's Gospel together. We've taken a break. We went to uh, the book of Amos, and then we've had, of course, the Christmas uh, period where we've had a few extra sermons along the way. And last time we looked at John's Gospel together, we were in chapter 8, of course, and John 8 finished with an amazing statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was debating with the Jews, and he was talking to them about who is their father, who is his father, and then he made this incredible statement at the end of John chapter 8, where he says uh, in verse 58, verse 58 of John 8, he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I And we looked at the understanding of what that statement is, that Jesus is the I am. And we know that the Jews took it badly, this statement, because of the very next verse and what they attempted to do. Verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. We saw that Jesus was claiming to be divine there that he was claiming to be the great I am, he was claiming to be God, and the Jews did not like that at all. They understood what he was claiming, and they sought to stone him for blasphemy. And then we then pick up at John chapter 9, verse 1, and we don't know how much time has lapsed between uh, Jesus hiding himself from those who would stone him uh, and him coming along and seeing someone begging on the side of the road. Who do we see in verse 1, Jesus comes along and we see that he saw a man from blind from birth. And so this is the person that we're going to start examining. We're going to be, of course, looking at Jesus and his disciples and uh, primarily Jesus and his interaction with this man who was born blind. And to be honest, I'm really hanging out to meet this man in, in heaven, not Jesus. Uh, well, I am hanging out to read Jesus. I don't mean, uh, he's first and foremost the one that I want to see in heaven. Uh, but I'm also, uh, really keen to meet this man who was born blind because he is a real character. I love him and I'm going to thoroughly enjoy, I think, preaching on him for the number of weeks that we have ahead of us. And so we first meet him here as The disciples and Jesus are walking along and they see him. And the disciples also see this man and they have a question for Jesus. They have a theological question for Jesus. And that is given to us in verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter 9, it reads, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so the disciples are asking a common question that is raised when people suffer, particularly suffer severely, when they have a real pain of some sort, a real disability, a really big trial that has been given to them, what have they done to deserve such suffering? Or what have their parents done to cause such suffering? Or other family members might have done to cause such suffering? And the disciples obviously believe that this is true, that if you have severe suffering that you must have sinned very badly in some way that 
brings about such suffering in your life. Now, why would the disciples believe such a concept? Well, it does have a biblical basis. Um, We understand that all suffering in this world, all the pain that we experience is because of original sin, because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. All the pain, all the troubles of this world, they all stem from that sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And also God warns regularly of the way that he will bring pain into people's lives and to the lives of their family if they sin against him if they sin against him. And we see that in passages like the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where the second commandment uh, given by God is, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. God says, don't make idols. Then he continues, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's a strong warning there. If you bow down to other gods, if you start to worship idols, I'm a God who punishes people for such actions. To the third and fourth generation, I will punish your children as well for your actions in worshipping false gods. And, of course, God doesn't just warn that he will cause suffering in the lives of those who sin against him. We see again and again in the pages of Scripture that people sin in some way and a specific punishment results from that specific sin. An example in the Old Testament, a very clear example, is uh, the death of David, King David's son, who he had with Bathsheba. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, Uh, He murders Bathsheba's husband. The Lord sees it as a great evil that has been done by David, which it is. And as a result, God says, your child will die. David mourns. He fasts before the Lord, prays, but the child still dies. And so we see a direct correlation between a specific sin and a specific punishment that is given by God in examples like that. And even Jesus himself In John chapter 5, which we looked at many, many months ago, uh, John chapter 5, where he heals a crippled man there, after he finds the man again, he says to him, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. If you don't stop your sinning, something worse than being lame may happen to you. And so we see that the disciples have this biblical basis for their question that they're raising with Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there's a biblical basis for it, but it's also an attractive option for people to have about particular illnesses that they may experience or somebody else may experience, that there's a sin that is related to that illness. Um, People like to have this kind of idea. Why? Because it encourages people to do good works, rather than bad works. Um, it's always an encouragement to, uh, to, uh, to be doing what is right when you understand that there's a rod that may hit you if you do what is wrong. So people like the idea of doing good works, and if they can use the fear of punishment uh, to encourage good works, well, then they would like to use it. It also appears to be a noble defense of God uh, in bringing about punishment into people's lives. We understand that God is a loving God, a gracious God, a compassionate God, a kind and good God. Why would he bring any suffering on anyone? Well, if it's because of sin, well, then God is still good and kind and gracious. It's only in his justice that he is administering such a thing as being born blind. 
And so if we understand that it's all related to some sort of sin, then we protect God in his sovereignty and his actions towards humans with the pain that they may feel. Also, most of mankind actually accept something like this. Even other religions have the idea of karma, that if you do something bad, then something bad will happen to you as a result. Uh, we all understand this, and we see it played out in our lives as well. We see the way that people, they do something wrong, they often are hurt in some way as a result, and it may be a direct correlation to what they do. If you rob a bank and get shot, well, uh, yes, there's a direct correlation between what you were doing and the pain that you felt from a bullet passing through your body. And we see it even with the way that uh, people can suffer because of the actions of their parents. A child can be born addicted to heroin. A baby has an, is an addict from when it's born. Why? Because of the actions of the mother. And so most people see this as a, a very logical conclusion that if you experience pain, then you must have been doing something wrong. And... It also helps us, I think, as an attractive option to the disciples and to us today because it makes us feel better about not helping those who are in pain. You think, oh, well, they deserve what they get. Um, they must have done something pretty bad. And so we don't need to help that person in the struggles that they're going through because they must have done something bad. And so it's not surprising that people want to understand all suffering through such a grid. And so we have disciples here following a logical conclusion that they have come to at some point in their life, that suffering equals sin, and sin equals suffering. And so you can correlate the two. But it's not always easy to do. Why do I say this? Well, the example before us is a very tricky example to try and work out. Why? Well, this man is born blind. So... How much opportunity has this man had to sin in his life in order to be born blind? When he's born, that's when he's blind, so he must have done something in the womb, if it's his sin, that has caused the blindness. So the question is, how hard did he kick his mum's tummy? How much did she keep him, how much did he keep her awake at night? If he was a twin, maybe he poked his brother in the eye a few times, and, uh, and so that's why the blindness has resulted. And we see that children do, are described as wrestling in the womb. Uh, but, yes, we've got this problem that this man is born blind, which is a severe disability. It's a real sad thing for this man. So what did he do to deserve that? What can a baby do to deserve that? And so it's not surprising that the disciples asked not just what the man may have done, but was it his parents that did something? Was it the way he was conceived? Was it an adulterous relationship that his parents were having that caused this man to be born blind? Or was it something else that the parents did that caused this man to be blind? And so the disciples are interested in this knotty problem. They generally say, yes, Sin equals punishment, but then this man's born blind and it just doesn't seem to add up that we can work out exactly what the sin is that would cause such a disability. And so what is Christ's response? We see that the, the disciples, it's a foregone conclusion that it's because of a particular sin that this man is the way he is. What is Christ's response to the disciples? Well, we see that there in verse 3. 
Verse 3, it says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. What is Christ's response? Well, firstly, we see that there's a few things that Jesus does not do in his response. Firstly, he doesn't deny the sovereign control of God in this man being born blind, which is what some people would like to say, is that God is somehow not in control of everything, and so he would love the man to have been born with sight, but he just couldn't do it. Jesus doesn't deny that. He doesn't say that. He, doesn't, he does deny that. He, he, he says that the man is born blind, and he doesn't go into, oh, well, God had no control in that, per se. No, he doesn't deny the sovereign control of God of pain. And he also doesn't deny that all pain that we've experienced in this world comes from original sin. He doesn't go back to Adam and Eve and say, well, because of original sin, because of our first parents, uh, then of course this man can be born blind because that sin carries over to us and it is deserving of being born blind. No, he doesn't deny original sin and he doesn't use that as an explanation uh, here. And he doesn't blame the man for a specific sin either. We don't see that he brings up, well, this man in the womb, he did this, and that's the problem here. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, say that the, the parents have sinned either. And we see that in verse 3. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So what is the reason why this man has been born blind? It's there in verse 3. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This man was born blind purely so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. What is this work that is to be displayed in this man's life? The work of God that would be displayed. Well, we see as we will continue to work through John chapter 9 that it displays the power of Jesus Christ, the compassion of Jesus Christ, the mercy of Jesus Christ is displayed in this man's life as he is healed of this illness, this disability that he was born with. And so God's work is displayed marvellously in this man's life purely because he was born blind. Jesus is then able to open the eyes of this man and he's able to show his power and even also point to the fact that he is the Messiah, the one who is to come, who is the light of the world, who gives sight to the blind, not just physical blind, but also to spiritually blind. He's able to use this man's illness as a way of pointing people to the need to trust in him for spiritual sight of the living God. And so Jesus tells us that this happened, this illness happened to this man so that the work of God, the works of God, it's actually plural there, the works of God might be displayed in the man's life. So Jesus is teaching us that there is times where innocent suffering happens purely so that God's work may be displayed in that person's life. That people can suffer severely, and the reason they suffer is not because of an actual sin that they have committed that correlates directly to that amount of suffering, but it's because God wants to display his work in their life by delivering them from that suffering and by doing other things through that suffering. And that's a consistent idea within the scriptures. There are classic examples of it, and I'll give you two this morning. First is the book of Job. Job is an excellent example of someone who did not do something to deserve the pain that he went through. He lost his family, he lost his possessions, he lost even his health, his good health. 
and his friends come and they say, you must have sinned, like the disciples do here in John chapter 9. They come along and they say, you must have sinned in order to experience this trouble. And God, at the end of the book, vindicates Job and says, no, it's not because of his sin, because of a particular sin of Job, but it's also that my glory might be displayed in his life. And another example, the best example of all, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, did not experience a carefree, healthy, wonderful life. No, he experienced a life of trouble and pain to the point of a death at the cross. Did he sin so that he would die in such a way, that he would experience such trouble? No, he was perfect. He never sinned. The Lord Jesus Christ is the spotless Lamb of God. He never sinned, yet he experienced great pain. Why? So that the works of God might be displayed in his life. While he was suffering, while he was experiencing that pain, God was working in him to produce salvation for many, many people, countless people, as many as the stars are in the sky, as sand is on the seashore. God was working in Christ, displaying his work while Jesus hung and suffered there on the tree. And then, of course, God's work was displayed in delivering Jesus Christ from the grave, raising him up to his right hand in heaven. So the Bible does teach that we can suffer in this world, and it may not be because of a specific sin, and it may be intense, severe suffering, but it's not because of a specific sin. Rather, it is so that God's work might be displayed in our lives. So what should we be doing in response to this? Well, there's a number of applications that we could make from this text, but I think one of the big things for us to learn, at least in the first couple verses of this chapter, is that we should not be like the disciples and go around judging people because of their suffering. The disciples are being quite judgmental here, and Jesus points them in another direction altogether. And it's easy for us to judge people struggling with severe pain as terrible sinners. Or maybe that their family has done something to cause such pain to be in their lives. We ask the question, well, what did they do to deserve cancer? They've got cancer. Now, what did they get up to that we don't know about that led to God giving that person cancer? Or what did the parents do to have such a rebellious daughter? She's a terrible person must be the parents. Their sin, they've done something. They either lack the discipline that they should have been putting in the home or they spoiled her too much or maybe they sinned in some grievous way. So God gave them such a rebellious daughter. It's easy to do, to look at someone's suffering and you say, ah, they must have sinned in some way to bring that about into their life. But the thing is, It may be true that sin does equate to certain suffering, but it's not always the case, and we don't know for sure, and it's not really our place to look at someone's intense suffering and say, what is the sin in that person's life that they need to repent of in order to alleviate such suffering? Because it may be that they didn't sin at all in such a grievous way that would lead to such grievous suffering. And it's really their place to try and work out, to examine themselves and say, Did I do something that has brought about such suffering in my life? It's not our place. It's rarely our place at all to look at the person and say, 
who sinned? The person themselves or their parents or some other family member that brought about such pain? And on the other spectrum, another application that we can take from this is uh, the other side. We can flip it over and also look at the way that we can judge righteous people as we can judge some people as righteous based on their prosperity. There's an evil teaching out there called the prosperity gospel. And basically its teaching is that the faithful are wealthy and healthy in this world. If you are wealthy and healthy, then you must be faithful. And it's not true. It's an evil teaching. And it should not be applied to people because some of the most godly people are the most uh, unhealthy and poorest people in the world. And some of the most unrighteous people are the wealthiest and healthiest in the world when we examine them in the light of Scripture. And so we must be very careful about looking at other Christians and thinking that they are very righteous because they're healthy and wealthy. And we must be careful of looking at other churches and thinking, well, that church, because it's doing really well, it must be very righteous. This is always a particular struggle for me as a pastor of a church, and I would like to see the church prosper in many different ways. And then when it doesn't, I like to be hard on myself and try and think, is it something that I've done? Is it something that the rest of the family is doing, the church family, uh, to cause us to not be in the, uh, the state that I would like to see us in? But we must resist such sinful temptations. Uh, Job's friends are all too possible to be within a church, to go around judging other people based on their prosperity or their pain and judging them as righteous or unrighteous accordingly. And we must resist it. Why? Well, firstly, we're often speaking words without knowledge and darkening God's counsel, which is what Job's friends were doing. When they spoke to Job and said, you must have sinned in some way to bring about this pain, God says that they were darkening his counsel and they were speaking words without knowledge, which is a severe thing to do. And we should also resist it because it actually hurts people who probably need our compassion the most. When we look at someone who's really struggling with some illness, some problem, and we start to go, what did you do to bring that upon you? Do you think that's particularly helpful? When it's quite possible that the person didn't do anything? I mean, you think of the poor bloke here, this blind man. He's blind. He's not deaf. Do you think he can hear what the disciples are saying? And how many times does he hear this each day with other Jews that come along and say, oh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He would have heard it again and again and again, this man who needs compassion, who's begging there, asking for help. And person after person is attributing his blindness to some sin, which we know from the authoritative words of Jesus Christ himself that he hadn't caused such suffering to happen in his life. How would he have felt day after day to be told again and again that you've done something very bad to not be able to see? This is someone who needs compassion. And it's the same with us with the people that we mix with, when they are in pain, when they're in trouble. They need our compassion, not our sinful attitudes of judgment towards them. So one thing that we should do as a result of this, 
is avoid telling people, going around telling people that they must have sinned in some way when they're in severe pain. The other thing, so that's something we should avoid. That's not something we should do. That's something we should avoid. The thing that we should do is instead consider displaying the works of God in that person's life by helping them ourselves. What does verse 4 say? Jesus had just said that uh, in verse 3 that neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Then verse 4, what does it say? As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. We. Very interesting that it says we, they're not I, must do the work of him who sent me, which we often hear from Jesus, that he's the one who's doing the work of God. But he says we here. We must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. There is a time where you won't be able to do the work that is available for you to do now. We must do the work and we must think about when we see someone struggling in some way, not about their sin or the sin of their parents or some other family member, we must think about what can I do to display God's work in their life by being God's instrument in that person's life and helping them. What can I do like Jesus to help someone in such a case? And what did Jesus do? He helped the man physically and he helped the man spiritually, as we'll see in weeks to come. He helped the man with his physical need and he helped the man with his spiritual need to know the Saviour himself. So the question is for us, what would we do in such a situation? If you'd been walking to the temple there and you'd seen this man begging, would you have walked right past? Would you have given him something? to help him in his need? Would you have befriended him, sat down with him, got to know him? Would you have pointed him to the Lord, to keep on trusting in God, to know that God is the one who saves? What would you have done with this man? Would you have walked right past? Would you have stopped maybe and had a theological discussion about sin? Or would you have actually helped the man? with his needs, as Jesus did. I know many of you do help those who are suffering. But are there some that you're not noticing at all? I know that we in this church, many godly people here, and we love the Lord and we love others and we love to try and help people. Even on Christmas Day, we saw there that, and I didn't plan it, but we gave to Christian Blind Mission as we always do on Christmas Day, and people gave very generously so that people can see physically see. I love that about this church. But are there people that you're not noticing, that you're walking right past in your life, that need your help, that are in pain, that are struggling and need you to display God's work in their life and you're walking right past them? Is there someone you've walked past even this week who needs your physical help? who needs your emotional help or psychological help, who just needs you to pray with them. If you don't know what to pray, pray words from one of the Psalms that we even had read today. Psalms are very good at calling out to the Lord in their grief. We read Psalm 88 before, which has to be one of the darkest parts of the Bible. The Psalms generally have some sort of hope in them. Psalm 88 does not. Did you notice how the Psalm ended? Darkness is my closest friend. Not the Lord is my closest friend. Darkness is my closest friend. You can pray that with someone. Help them as they're suffering, as they're going through trial. 
by pointing them to prayer to the living God. Even if the prayer doesn't have much hope in it, but it's acknowledging to the Lord what they're going through. Is there someone that you walked right past this week, this month, that could have done with your help? Spiritual help? Or maybe just some physical, or psychological, emotional benefit by you spending some time with them. I was convicted as I was writing this sermon about uh, there's a man who's been selling the big issue up at our local supermarket. The big issue is a magazine that's produced fortnightly. It's an independent magazine that is sold on the streets by homeless, marginalised and disadvantaged people. Now, I used to buy the big issue quite regularly uh, when I'd see it in the city. Uh, well, regularly. I'm not that regular in the city, but when I go into the city, that's where the majority of these uh, people are selling that issue, and I would uh, that magazine. And so I would purchase it. And I purchased it from him a couple of times up here at IGA. And while I was preparing this sermon, I was convicted about the many times that I've actually walked right past him. There's a man who, I don't know what his background is, but he's been in trouble. And he's there selling the big issue, trying to make some money to make ends meet, to bring him out of his distress. And I've got all the good excuses as to why I shouldn't buy from him. He probably did something bad in his life that has put him in this position. He probably wasn't as diligent in school, maybe, or he's done something really bad to somebody else and has taken away all his money. And so really he deserves what he gets. I've got another excuse that he may spend the money that I give him on drugs and alcohol. And so it's actually loving of me not to give him any money because he'll just waste it and actually cause himself further harm. It may also be in my mind that I don't have the right cash at the time and so I have to end up tipping him pretty, pretty big and, uh, and I don't really want to ask him for change. He may not have the change. Um, and then the other excuse that I have that's predominantly in my mind when I walk past it is... I don't actually like the articles in the big issue. Um, the magazine, it's a bit too left-wing for me, and, uh, and so I don't really like the magazine, and, uh, and so it's kind of a waste of money to buy it from this person. I've got all the excuses as to why I should walk past him. But if I bought that magazine regularly from him, every time I saw him up there, maybe he'd start to get to know me. When he sees me coming, he'd think, oh, yes, here's a customer. And in time, I might be able to speak to him about his life, about what he's going through. And I may even, by buying copies of that magazine, buy an opportunity to display God's work in his life by sharing the gospel with him. And he may actually display God's work in his life by having his eyes open to the truth about Jesus. He may already be a Christian, but he may not be. And if I help that person physically at first, I may actually get an opportunity to help him spiritually. Now, is there someone in your life that you're walking right past? I don't necessarily mean the people begging on the street, but is there someone that you're walking right past? You know they're in pain, they need your help, but instead of displaying God's work in their lives by you helping them, you're happy to walk right past. We have a compassionate saviour, and we see that in this passage. He is so wonderful to this man who probably so many people have judged over the years. We don't know how old he is. He's obviously um, old enough to talk, uh, as we'll see, and they say he's of age to defend his actions, defend his statements. Jesus sees this man, has compassion for him, and then displays God's work marvellously in his life. 
Are we doing the work of God who sent Jesus in the lives of those who are suffering around us as well? Let us speak to our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God who does take notice of those who suffer and you display your work in their lives. Oh Lord, we confess that far too often we have lacked compassion for those in pain. We've misjudged them and we haven't helped them and we've even kept the gospel from them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have compassion for those who suffer and may you use us in their lives to give yourself glory. May you work in us and display yourself in the lives of those that we interact with. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.